Okay. We have a couple questions to wrap up here about the person of Christ, and then we're going to start into the second major part of the class, and that is the work of Christ uh, with a particular concentration on his death. But before we get there, there's a couple last things we want to wrap up here. And that is, uh, did we start this question of whether Christ has one or two wills? No, okay, I didn't think so, but I just one or two what? One or two wills. Wills. No, it should be on forty-seven. Yeah, forty-seven. Question here is what you know. We we know that Christ had two natures, one person. The question here is: Was he? Was there? Was there any sort of confliction within God, with with within Christ, with respect to His will? Did He have one will, God's will, or did He have two wills, a divine will and a human will? So that's that's really the question here. So the question at issue is whether volition, and with it consciousness, I think it also comes along with it, are functions of the person. Or of the nature. If it's the former, you know, the will is the function of the person, then Christ had one will and one consciousness. If it is the latter, then he had two consciousnesses and two wills. Okay? And we're going to suggest the the answer has to be two. So when Christ was walking on the earth, there were times in which his human consciousness made observations, made you know that that, uh, and he could say, "I thirst, I hunger," uh, because he was speaking from the standpoint of the, his consciousness as a human. Although there was also another consciousness, the logos, that was actually in command of all of God God's attributes, and he knows that he is God, and and knows. And experiences in himself all that is God. And so he had two consciences and two wills. Let's see if we can't defend this. It seems best to suggest that since volition is a necessary part of being a complete human, Christ must have had a truly human volition. Note the following. Christ had a human mind by which he learned, possessed incomplete knowledge, he had a dis- and it was distinct from his divine mind, which was immutably omniscient. So we're talking about the immaterial of, of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, He had a human brain, and he also had a divine mind, and they were not did not have identical content. Christ also had a comprehensive human emotional complex consisting of appetites, passions, and affections, which is distinct from his divine emotional complex, which is much simpler, consisting strictly of affections and not of appetites and passions, as we pointed out. It follows therefrom that Christ must have had a human consciousness whereby he could say, I thirst, or I am weary, that is distinct from his divine consciousness, whereby he could say, for instance, I must be about my father's business, or I and the father are one. So he had two consciousnesses and two volitions. <coughs> Which is why, then, we can have this conflicted statement here, Matthew 26, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as... I will, but as you will, and there is only one will in God, so it's not as though this is the the will of the second person in conflict with the will of the first person here. What we have here is a, it's not an unwillingness of the human Jesus to go through uh, through the uh, the ordeal he's about to go to. Nonetheless, there is certainly a not an eagerness either. <laughs> uh, so, so I, th- I think what we have here is basically a statement: Is there another way? <laughs> I, I'm willing to do everything that is the will of the Father. Nonetheless, I still have a question: Is there another way? Because if there's another way to do this without going through what 
is planned here, then I want to know about it. Okay, I think that's is effectively what he's saying when he says, "Is there?" You know, I believe the NLT says, "Is there another way?" You know, he groans and says, "Is there another way?" I think it's. I think it's. Well, it's not so much a good in, uh, uh, translation; it's a good interpretation, um, and so I, I think that's exactly what he's saying. And, so, and, and the reason he can do that is because uh, there is there are two wills within him. So his human volition is distinct from his divine volition, to which his human will always submitted, with the result that he always pursued without internal conflict the divine will with. In all of his actions, I have come to do your will. My will is your will. And uh, he says that on, 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 on multiple occasions. There was a monothelite controversy that was, you can see the word mono is one thelite will. So a thelema is a will. So, so the monothelite controversy was settled by the Third Council of Constantinople in the 7th century and affirmed that to affirm, to say that there's only one will in Jesus Christ is actually heresy. So there are two wills and two operations in Christ and that the human will deferred consistently to the divine. But I say here, not everyone has accepted this. Uh, strong systematic theology actually gives an alternative view, but I, I've, I've, been, I've been inclined towards the Orthodox tradition position on this one. Okay? Does that follow? That makes sense? Trying to get this sort of complete picture of what Jesus is like without you know without actually being able to master it. Another question here, was Christ impeccable? That is, could he have sinned? That's the question. If he is truly human (coughs) as we affirm he is is it possible that he could have sinned? The question here has not received a consistent answer in the history of the church. Now, you uh, here, here are some things that you can't deny. You have to agree that, like the first Adam, Christ did have did not have a sin nature, and secondly, that Christ did not sin. Okay, that that we have to affirm. Christ did not have a sin nature, and he did not sin, but that's not really the question we're after. The question is whether he could have, hypothetically, have sinned. So that's that's the question here. Many arguing that sin is predicated on the volition, which is an aspect of nature, and Christ had two of these, affirm that Jesus, as a human, like Adam, was able to sin or at the very minimum, was able to sin prior to his temptation and confirmation in holiness. And so, I've sort of got a technicality there. Remember, Adam was was given a test. Had he succeeded, then he would have been confirmed in holiness and and and, and, and would have been, you know, rendered, he, he eventually would have been rendered sin-free. Just like the angels. There's the elect angels, the holy angels, and the non-elect, the, the demons. And at some point... They're confirmed in whatever state they're in. So that would have happened to Adam. And some would suggest that's exactly what happened to Jesus. That Jesus was unconfirmed until the temptation and was confirmed in holiness from that point on. These argue from the assumption that temptability demands peccability. If you're going, if you, if you're truly to be tempted, you have, it, it, you must be able to sin or else it's not tempt, not really temptation. So if Christ could not have sinned, these argue, then it cannot be rightly said that he was tempted in every way like we are. And you can see some names perhaps that you recognize. Charles Hodge, Millard Erickson, Wayne Grudem. These are somewhat uh, big names who affirm that Christ could have sinned. They argue also that Christ was tempted in a way that God cannot be tempted. Okay, so, you know, God cannot be tempted with sin, we know, from James 1.13. And so, the fact that Christ was tempted means that he was tempted in his humanity, not in his deity. And so, uh, their conclusion is that when Jesus went out into the wilderness, he was on his own, at least in terms of his humanity. 
the God part, the Lagos heart part, did not help him in the least in that event. Okay, so God couldn't be tempted, you know, to to turn stones into bread to eat because God couldn't be hungry. Right, right. So God, so God could not be tempted in that way. So Jesus, if he was to be tempted like we are, and like God is not, he had to be tempted strictly in his humanity, and so he must have. Uh, been tempted without the safety net of impeccability could have sinned. And then they also they also argue that the logical argument is only a truly vulnerable person, one who's vulnerable to sin, can truly sympathize without weaknesses, our weaknesses should be our weaknesses. This is the minority position, although some big names hold it. A historical majority, on the other hand, have insisted that Jesus was impeccable, that he could not have sinned, arguing that since sin is predicated of persons and not of natures, that Christ, being fundamentally divine in his personhood and thus confirmed in holiness from all eternity, could never have sinned. Any sin committed by Jesus, even in his unaided humanity, would be chargeable to his divine person, because that's the only person he has. This is unconceivable, and thus impossible. Just as God is holy and incapable of sin, so also the God-man is holy and incapable of sin. And there you can see some names on the other side of this debate. Louis Burkhoff, Dr. McCune, John Walvoord, and especially W.G.T. Shedd. These argue that temptability does not require peccability. That is, and uh, here's Shedd's illustration, that while an army might be invincible, that does not mean it's unattackable. Okay, so You might have an, an army of a million people, and the, the, the only opposition is a, you know, a tiny band of fellows, you know, boys with slingshots. Well, that, that army cannot be conquered. That doesn't mean it can't be attacked. Okay, so 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 that's the point. Yes, Jesus was like the army. <coughs> he he couldn't be conquered. Nonetheless, it doesn't mean he couldn't be attacked. This is the argument that Shed uses. Uh, um, Frame uses the example here. If I could I could boast that I could swim across the English Channel without drowning. And suppose I, you know, I say, I, say I, could, I could do this. I can't. I can't swim at all. But uh, but suppose I suppose I would say that, and 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 I, and so I decide I'm going to prove this. And so I have somebody in a motorboat go alongside of me, and uh, you know, just you know, just in case I have some sort of problem along the way, uh, they, this motorboat sort of tracks along with me until I get to the other side. Did I? Did I? Did I? successfully swim the English Channel? Yes. Without help. Even though it was right there the whole time. Okay, so that's Frame's illustration of, of how 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 God Christ could not have sinned. Like just like I could not have drowned. Uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, he, <coughs> he was he was he was tempted. Okay. So he endured the temptation, he endured, endured the swim. Further, since Christ is, Christ is able to sympathize with us because of his temptation alone, in that his temptation was greater in degree than ours. And Dr. McCune has an illustration of an oak tree. Okay, so I think I've already mentioned this one in here. So an oak tree and a sapling go through a windstorm together. At the end of the storm, the sapling is laying down, and the, tr- the oak tree is still standing. Which one felt the full weight of temptation or up uh, of the wind? <laughs> well, it's the it's the the oak tree because it it stood stood the whole the, the entire entirety of the wind. Where the sapling fell over at some point may not have felt the full weight of the wind. Same thing with Christ. The fact that Christ was tempted is enough, and 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 endured and succeeded in in fending off the temptation, actually makes him better equipped to sympathize with our temptations uh, than even just a, a, an ordinary man, because he actually succeeded in fending off the temptation. So. This, this seems to be the best way to go. John Frame attempts a, a middle way. 
arguing that in terms of God's sovereign decree, Christ was incapable of sinning. In terms of his humanity, he was naturally capable of sinning. That is, his humanity had a, a native capacity to sin. And in terms of his divinity, was morally incapable of sinning since he was perfectly holy. And here you see the influence of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, we'll talk about this with the freedom of the will. I think we talked about this a little bit last semester. Talk about it when we get to the doctrine of sin, too. But the idea that uh, um, when, you, when you ask, does, does, does an unsaved person have freedom? And what's the answer? No and yeah, okay, so we got a yes and a no, and the answer is yes and a no. Uh, that is that that the uh, that the unbeliever is native I mean, that is that is it's it's he is physically capable of, he has the physical capacity uh, to do the things that are required, but he does not have the moral capacity. We always we always choose according to our nature. So it's not as though a person is incapable of physically of doing of doing right. He is just morally incapable. He doesn't want to, and it's it's not because there's some sort of problem with his body. The, the problem is with his his thinking center, his immaterial. He just he just does not want to please God, even though he has the capacity to have faith. So the same thing here. He says sort of the opposite here. That Jesus had a natural capacity to sin, but not a moral capacity to sin. So it's sort of the opposite of an unbeliever, right? In his latter two points, I guess Frame seems to borrow uh, Edwards' distinction here of natural versus moral inability. He summarizes this way. As a man, and therefore as a divine human person, he could struggle mentally with Satan's proposals, growing in his understanding of their nature and consequences, maturing in his ability to relate these things to the will of his Father. He understood surely how evil tempts a man, what pleasures, however fleeting, are to be found in sin. Yet he saw all of these in their true perspective and rejected them. I say Frame's argument is attractive, but since moral impeccability is the salient question here, his position should be viewed as an affirmation of impeccability. He's morally incapable of sinning. Certainly he removes himself from Grudem's suggestion that Jesus was on his own in the wilderness. So the conclusion at the end of the day is that the doctrine of Christ's impeccability is most likely to be upheld, but obviously there's a great deal of debate still ongoing here. Any, any thoughts on that? I think ultimately at the end of the day he tilts toward impeccability uh, they, the salient question is it was it morally possible for him to sin and Frame would say no to that yeah. so so I think that's impeccability but it gives a little bit of a softer uh, you know it, it's a soft it falls a little bit more softly than so it was in all points tempted as we are that he was also Plus, it would have violated the uh, Old Testament scriptures. Yeah. Well, yeah, certain, certain, yeah, and, and that's where I think Frame comes into it. It was never possible in terms of the sovereignty of God. It, it never could have unfolded that way. Just as the same same thing could be said about Adam, it's not possible that he would have not sinned because, in the sovereignty of God, that's that was the plan. And, you know, just thinking about this, I mean, to me, does it give us any additional information regarding Jesus, that he was impeccable? I mean, I never... Well, it, it, it does, I think it touches on whether and how he is able to empathize with us in our weaknesses and understand what we go through yeah. when we're tempted. See, I see it that he was tempted... Um, I shouldn't say more than what we are, but he was able to withstand it. So he had all the pressure of the temptation to yeah. sin. 
but yet he did not sin. I mean, we we might you know give a front for you know a while, and then we sin. We give in the pressure. But is it uh, is it right to call it a temptation if there's no potential? Well, see, that's the question, and and I it seems to me that 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 oak tree illustration does suggest. Of course, illustrations are just that, right? They're illustrations that. There's always some sort of weakness in those illustrations, right? But at the same time, it does seem to to, to make sense to me that a <coughs> that a tree can feel the full weight of wind and not fall, and actually feel more wind than a tree that did fall. And in the same way, Christ, who was not able to fall, felt the weight of temptation in in in, in some sense in a way that we never we did. Could, we could not. Yeah. We never felt the full weight of temptation. We fell some point before right. yeah. Satan got there. Right. So, see, I would think if he's forty days and he's literally close to starving, <clears throat> he knows that he's God, and the temptation would be great because greater for him because he knows he can make the stones to bread whereas I would know that I couldn't do that. Does that make right. sense? Well, right, but but the temptation was are you going to use your divine powers to to you know, yeah. satiate your own appetites or are you going to use the divine powers to do what you're supposed to do? <coughs> it seems like that we can't say that it all points Christ was like us unless he had the potential. Well, he was tempted like we were. Doesn't say we... That, I mean, we, we have to admit that... He, I think everybody has to admit he wasn't like us in every way. Mm-hmm. He didn't have a sin nature. So there was there was nothing internal with which Satan could tempt him like there is with us. I mean, we've got inside of us this insatiable desire to sin that we have to press down all the time. Jesus didn't have that. Adam didn't have that. So, it, it, yeah, the statement is not that he is at all points like we are, but that he was tempted at all points like as we are. So the question is, does temptability require impeccability? And that's that's really what the question comes down to. Yeah, because, I mean, if you just, you know, if you think about it, you know, don't let a bad thought come into your mind. And just think about that. And then keep trying <laughs> to suppress and suppress and suppress. To me, that. You're tempting me here. But <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bro. <brother. laughs> it's a bad thought. <laughs> I wasn't thinking any bad thoughts until you brought that up. <laughs> well, and that's my point is that right. it is so tempting the temptation the you know <coughs> sin is so great but Christ was able to withstand that yeah. under any circumstance it's a tough question it's a very tough question I think I, I come down on the side of impeccability but I I am not I'm not calling heretics those who are on the other side of this question you're not going to give it to Gruden just a little bit? Uh, yeah, I, I like giving it to Gruden. Like <laughs> the fact that Hodge agreed with him, though, it's like, okay. Well. <laughs> so our, our, our final conclusion here, and this is the summary that with which we started this discussion here, and that was the question on your quiz. The historical formula of Council of Chalcedon is this. The two natures are united in one person or hypostasis without confusion, conversion, division, or separation, which is to say we must neither divide the person nor confound the natures. And so that last line there is sort of one that uh, is sort of, sort of you're, you're supposed to become so familiar with it that it sort of rolls off the tongue. So that was the goal with asking the question on the quiz. Okay. Any more questions on the person of Christ? I know we went through a number of different topics here on this, but any summary questions you didn't get answered, thoughts that you have? We're going to turn the corner here in the class. Hinge. Good.
Okay, so the work of Christ. Specifically, we're talking here about the death of Christ, the atoning death of Christ. Um, I'm going to start out by just trying to affirm that Christ died, and here's, you know, I say, well, really have to spend much time doing that. Well, in some sense, it's yes, because there's a lot of people who don't believe in it, or believe that what he was doing was complete, you know, completely different than what he was doing. So I, I, th- I know it seems a little bit pedantic to go through some of these basic issues here, but these are some of the questions that come up in 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 real life. So uh, even though I don't think there's anyone here who has any hesitations on this point, I still think it's a good point, good thing to run through for completeness sake. Okay? So the death and resurrection of Christ are at the center of the Christian gospel and together comprise the central event of the Christian scriptures. Okay? Let's start with the fact of it. Well, it was anticipated, firstly, in the Old Testament. We'll see it first in the in the Old Testament sacrificial system. These are not technically a prophecy of Christ's death in terms of a forward-looking prophecy. But the patterns that are established in the sacrifices, propitiation, satisfaction of the wrath, expiation, the removal of guilt, reconciliation, the creation of fellowship, that are, are all part of the sacrificial system, uh, com- combine to give us a sense of exactly what Christ is doing on the cross. High cost of sin, the character of God, the inability of the animal sacrifices to accomplish in the universal theater what they're able to accomplish in the in the in the nation of Israel. So 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 when people when people were standing at the foot of the cross, and as we read the events, we can we can look we can think back to what we've read as we've worked our way through the Old Testament and say, I know what's happening. I know what he's doing. It, it may look like it's just an execution of a criminal here, but because of the sacrificial system and and the details of the Old Testament, I I have an I have an inside track. I know exactly what's going up on the cross because I know what the sacrifices were doing. The sacrifices should not be regarded as a means of salvation in any sense. I, I want to stress this, even a temporary one. There's, there, there, that's, a, that's a popular idea out there that the sacrifices uh, were some sort of a temporary stay on sin. I call it the landfill view of the atonement here, where you know the, the, the you know they'd cover over the sins for a while, and then they'd you know cover over a little bit more. The next year they'd cover over. So you have what do you end up with? Well, your whole life's a landfill, um, and and so Jesus has to come and sort of wipe the whole thing away. That's not what the sacrifices did. The sacrifices did not have any anything to contribute to our salvation, not even in a temporary sense. Okay, it was rather a system of crime and punishment. For the theocratic community, okay, you know, there's no prisons in in Israel. There's a, there's a, there's a there's a system of of, of fines and sacrifices, uh, whereby all sins could be handled except for this short list of sins for which there was no sacrifice. Okay, those are capital crimes. You, you were simply put to death for those. But all the other ones you could handle through a system of, 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 of signs, uh, of, 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 signs of, of fines, of, of sacrifices, apologies, you know, different, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a complex of, of things, so I'm not going to sort of list them all here. But there, you, nobody ever had to go to prison for 10 years or six. 50 years or however long that it was all taken care of uh, uh, within this system so it's actually a, a rather a clever thing I'd, I'd like to think that it's something that um, in theory could be established in in, in, in any society uh, if it if we had the non-corrupt people to oversee it there's, there's the there's the big if right mm-hmm. So the sacrifices were able 
to make a person properly and truly reconciled to the covenant community. Okay? The sacrifices were effective to that end, which is why after the sacrifices were done, you know, and the, and the, the priest, you know, symbolically put the sin on the back of the goat and, and sent the goat out into the wilderness, symbolic of the expiation, the removal of the sin into the wilderness. And then the other one was slaughtered in payment. Okay, So you had the, redempt, the ideas of redemption and expiation come together. To, and, and the result is that this wrath of God is satisfied. And for, for the next year, you know, the Israelites who were gathered there were good. And so what did they do afterwards? Feast. They had a big meal. And 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 it was it was and the nice thing about this feast was is you know they, the, uh, the 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 priests would actually be part of it too, and so the priest would be invited to eat the eat the meal, and it was a grand celebration. Why was it a grand celebration? Well, because those sacrifices actually did something, okay. But it did not fit them for the next life. It made them good in this life, okay. So in this life, we're good for another year. So we come back and do this again next year. So it was right? like a sanctifying thing? Well, but it, it not, was, but I'm not, that's actually not the point I'm making right. with that. Right. It, it, was, it was actually a system of crime and punishment. So yeah, if, if I could, you know, we, we don't have the equivalents in our, in our society because we don't have sacrifices, obviously. But perhaps we, we, you could say, okay, let's let put it this way. Penance. Well, let, let, yeah, let's, let's put it say So you're, you're pulled over, you know, by a cop. You are we're speeding. You get a fine, hundred and fifty dollars. You have to, you have to go pay. It, okay. So you go in and uh, you know, wherever you go, you pay your fine, and they give you a receipt. And <coughs> what what happens then? It's gonna say I'm not good for another year. Well, <laughs> you walk but, away a free man, yeah, because your debt to love to get a good meal. Yeah. yeah, you've 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 satisfied the wrath of the city of, of the city or, or, the, or the township or wherever it was you were, and and you're good with that. You know, you, your guilt has been removed. You've satisfied the wrath, so this is propitiation, expiation. And you've made good. You might even shake hands with the guy. I, I don't know. No. <laughs> but, the insurance company. <laughs> but, but so, now, does that mean you're going to go to heaven now? No, it has nothing to do with going to heaven. It makes you right within your community. Within your, it's not a theocratic community here, but your democratic community. You're good. You're good. You can, you can walk away a free man get in your car and drive away. Uh, but it doesn't fit you for the next life. It makes you good in this life. So that's that's what I mean by that. The sacrifices did nothing for the next life. But they did do something very real for this life. And so and so that those 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 categories of the atonement are go, we're going to see what what Christ does on the cross, he does in the like what I say here the uh the uh, where did I, where did I say it? The universal theater. What the sacrifices did on a theocratic theater. Okay. So how were how was the covenant community as individuals fit for the next life? Same way we are. That is by by faith in the promises of God that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But that's not what they were doing when they went and offered the sacrifices. It's separate. So that was okay because I always thought that was part of that. They, yeah, I, through this they worked out what they believed of the promises of God. Right, but but the the, the, the thing is they they do have the the, the the language that's used. It satisfied the wrath. They they were they were their, their guilt was removed. They had fellowship. They were reconciled. There, there was something real that happened. But Hebrews 10 says the blood and bulls of goats will do a blessed thing to get you into heaven. So it's the same as Dr. Combs said a few Sundays ago that um, just asking for forgiveness of sin doesn't save you. 
No, but it could make you right with your community. Right. Yeah. If, so there could people that partook of these sacrifices, if they only went to that level, this thing does it for me, and I'm off. Yeah. Then now, in order to be right, rightly related to God in the in the in, in the grand scheme of things, one had to exercise faith in God and be and and, and then express that faith in obedience. So uh, a a, a true believer would go through the motions. They they would do the sacrifices. They would toe the line with with respect to the laws as best the as they find that. Faith would be behind it. The other way would right. be a mechanical. Exactly. <coughs> exactly. Genesis says, uh, "With Abraham, his faith was credited to him as righteousness." Right. Yes. And it was before the law, and that's Galatians' argument. Galatians' argument is that he did this before there was a law, before there even were sacrifices that were required, and yet he was he was he was credited with righteousness before he actually lifted a finger in obedience to the law. So, so even the ceremony, the once once a year ceremony, the trip into the holy of holies, that that's part of the same. System you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and, and there's about the only forward-looking thing that you might have, you might get out of that because, you know, you know, you, you take Junior with you, you know, your son, he's 12 years old, first time in. Now he he offers the sacrifice, and they have this big feast, and he goes to Dad and says, "Hey, can we go in that building over there, in that little room?" Uh huh. Why not? We offered a sacrifice. Well, yeah. Sorry, that, our sacrifices don't do anything to get us in there. And so there's this realization that there's something yet undone. That doesn't take away from the fact, though, that they were rejoicing that something had been done. So, so in retrospect, we can look at the sacrifices and and see the analogy for what it is. You know, and 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 I, I would like to think that as people were standing under the cross, or in the days that shortly after, and they start, started to process it, they would have said, "Yeah, I get it. I just I know what just happened uh, because of that." So, so there's there is a sense of anticipation in the animal sacrifices, not a prof- prophecy technically, but at least something of an anticipation here. It was prophesied though. In the Old Testament, in the prophets, there was a seed of the woman that was promised that was going to have his his heel his heel damaged, but he was going to crush the the head of Satan. Suffering servant in Isaiah gives a, a number of details as to exactly what this is going to be like. Some descriptions of the of the man who's who's, who's acquainted with grief and, and nothing particular to look upon, but he was cursed for our iniquities and so on and so forth Daniel speaks of the of the the Messiah being cut off after after 40 after uh, what is after the 62 weeks uh, Messiah will be cut off and so there was a realization that this was going to happen there was a smitten shepherd it's described in Zechariah there's also some Psalms too that speak to the suffering and even death of the referent, I think particularly of Psalm 22. It's probably best, though, to see these as laments with which the Messianic sufferer related by way of an analogy, just as we do. You know, I know oftentimes the, the people look at Psalm 22 and you see the details that, that, uh, that you find reflected in the in the cross work of Christ, you know, they, 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 you know, take my garment and cast lots. I, I can see my bones, and uh, so there's a number of number of things that are that are described there. And you say, uh, it, was that a prophecy of the crucifixion? Probably not. Probably what we've got here is 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 David speaking of his own circumstances uh, as he's running around in the wilderness. You know, starving, thirsty. You know, uh, because he's in the he's in a desert. He doesn't have any food. His bones are probably distended because of the lack of of food. So these, these, this is a graphic illustration, graphic description of 
David's situation. So why does Jesus use it? Well, the same way, for the same reasons we use Psalm 23 when we go to a funeral, right? Uh, yeah, that, that that description that that was an event that took place in the life of the psalmist, and he writes it down, and we quote him not because he was prophesying my grandfather's death or, or something that that wasn't that wasn't what was going on. He, he wasn't prophesying my father's death or something. Nonetheless, I could derive some comfort in saying. I've got something in common with this psalmist. I, I you know, and, and in my moment of grief, he gives me words when I don't have any of my own, right? I mean, we've probably all been there, right? Um, and so probably that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. I, I, I tend not to see too many of, of these, these as, as <laughs> hermeneutically it doesn't work uh, because David is clearly describing his own situation. He's not prophesying the Messiah. So uh, it's probably that we have here uh, a uh, an, an analogy here. There are some of the Psalms that are that are prophetic uh, of of Messiah, but I think some of those are are simply uh, Jesus using the Psalms the way we're supposed to. You know, finding finding points of comparison with our of our situation with the Psalmist situation and deriving comfort from it. So. It was also announced by John the Baptist, very clear terms, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and again, anybody who is, who is, who is you know, entrenched in this, in this sacrificial system, when they heard Lamb, they were like, ah, I get it, okay, the Lamb of God, this is the, this is the super Lamb, who's not just going to, you know, whisk away a year's worth of sins out into the wilderness, this is a this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world on a grand scale, because they, so they, that's how they would have understood uh, John's expression here. It was predicted by Christ Himself. He said He was going to die. For the first two years or so of Christ's ministry, He stressed the kingdom of God and the need to prepare for that great era. The emphasis of His ministry then was not so much on His death as was the kingdom. <laughs> there are a few allusions here to his death. It says in John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. But then there's the comment, the parentheses. But he was speaking about the temple of his own body. Uh, John 3, 14 and 15, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. John 6, the bread I am going to give for the life of the world is my flesh. So there's 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 at least some hints here of his death. But at Caesarea Philippi, this is sort of the turning point. Uh, it comes after this this unpardonable sin incident where the crowds swell to their greatest. Nonetheless, there's this 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 understanding that you know Jesus is not doing these things in the power of of the spirit and so Jesus starts to start to shed the crowds tells these parables that make people turn away in confusion uh, he, and, until we basically are left with just the disciples and it's, it's during this process this winnowing process that Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi and it says here that he began to openly or plainly teach and proclaim his death <coughs> so the rejection of the kingdom of the kingdom was was understood to be finalized here and it was postponed and so now Jesus begins to prepare his followers for his death and for his absence now perhaps in all of this you might be saying okay so what would have happened if they had accepted his offer of the kingdom and embraced him as their messiah would Jesus have died then, well, in terms of divine sovereignty, again, that could never have happened. Okay, the events of the Gospels were eternally destined to unfold the way they did, and so this question is, in one sense, moot. <coughs> it makes for an interesting what-if scenario, but the outworking of history was never in doubt. Okay, it's kind of like the question: What if Adam had never sinned? Well. In some ways, it's sort of a moot question because he did, and he always was going to. 
nonetheless, we could, you know, it is something of a what-if scenario. However, in terms of the dispensational program, it would seem that for Christ's kingdom offer to be valid, there must have been a hypothetical way in which the kingdom might counterfactually have been realized in the first century. Okay, so, as I understand it, if, if Jesus says, here's the kingdom, if you receive it, it will begin. That hypothetically, if they had said, okay, that there would have been some sort of, you know, counterfactual, but hypothetically possible way it could have unfolded. And how would that have happened? Well, we know that Jesus would still have had to die. You know, it's, it's, it's not as though he came simply to offer the kingdom. He came to sacrifice himself for sin, and without his death for sin, uh, everyone's still on their way to hell. So, Christ would have died. How would it have unfolded? It's hard to say, but maybe, perhaps uh, there would have been some sort of a Jewish uh, revolt, and Jesus and, and the Romans would have put down the revolt, killed Jesus, put him in his grave, and thought that it was over, and then Jesus would have risen from the dead, and boom, kingdom begins. Uh, of course, that was never technically going to happen, but I think in order for the, for the offer to have been a valid one, I think there at least has to be a hypothetical possibility here. So in terms of God's redemptive plan, God's Christ's death was necessary. Uh, so the the offer of the kingdom, whether or not it was received, would not have changed the fact that Jesus had to die. So his death would still have occurred had the Jews accepted their Messiah. Okay? So it was predicted, it was proclaimed by the apostles. Peter claims that at Pentecost it's part of that list of things of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15 I received I, I passed unto you of, of first importance that Christ died and it's going to be commemorated throughout eternity it's the song of the saints and angels and even in the very last two chapters of Revelation Christ is still depicted picturesquely as a lamb which which brings to mind again again in, because we don't you know, we don't we don't even have sheep, very many sheep in the in, in the U.S. of A. Uh, let alone a sacrificial system for sheep. And so the 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 uh, when you say lamb or sheep, it doesn't bring up the same kinds of word pictures and thoughts that it did for this community. But and when they heard sheep, they're thinking, you know, they're 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 thinking the temple, the sacrifices. That's that's that was all going through their minds. Okay, so the death of Christ is is an absolute certainty. It's the the whole scripture is just brimming with material about it, and it was necessary that it be this way. Um, obviously, it's it's necessary for incidental reasons, but also from for, for some very theologically important reasons. So, in the gospel accounts, Christ expressed a compelling need to go to the cross, beginning in Caesarea Philippi to say that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and that he must be killed. So he's putting in this this absolute language, it's got to happen, I must die. And this need here was voluntary, it was self-imposed, it's not as uh, though he, uh, uh, to, you know, it's just something he was succumbing to, but he was determined to take this path of his own initiative, he gave himself up for us. The question under consideration is why was it necessary? Well, we start with some inadequate reasons for the death of Christ. Some you know, reasons that you'll hear here and there, uh, but then, uh, but that are wrong. Christ did not die simply because it's the fate of all men. Christ expresses a pressing need to die a death that is both impending and intentional. It's not an ordinary death. Christ did not need to suffer in order to learn about humanity what God could not know and thus to better understand them and meet their needs. This is this is one of the views of the atonement that is particularly uh, on the ascendancy today in, uh, in our in our in our you know, the, the, the oppression index world, you know, the, the intersectional kind of world uh, that, that Jesus is here to, to, to empathize with the oppressed 
And so the idea is that he came to understand what, what makes humanity tick and to suffer an oppression that is greater uh, than, than any oppression that any of us could possibly face. And so therefore, understand how to relate. That, obviously, there is a sense in which Christ does understand humanity through his life and death. But was that the need was that his need to die in order to understand us? Now, I don't. That that that's not a, a, a primary reason for his death. And he certainly didn't die to incite his followers by his martyrdom to rise up and effect victory over the dark forces that then existed in their culture and society, and thus pl- uh, paved the way for the kingdom of God. This was a particularly uh, popular view in the 19th century that uh, that there is this this called the Christus Victor that he was basically trying to lead a rebellion he was not succeeded not succeeding in getting a crowd and so by his martyrdom he hoped maybe that uh, this this would work uh, to get people to rise up and overthrow Rome I read a book Christus Victor I don't think it was about that well, that, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know I what you read, but but that's that's a that's a that's a, a, a Latin phrase yeah. that describes this view of the atonement. It's a college textbook thing. Was by, was it by uh, Albert Schweitzer? So long ago, forty years ago. Okay, so these aren't the reasons for the death of Christ. So, what reasons can we give? Well, there's some incidental ones. What I mean by this is uh, that these are compelling reasons, but they're incidental to the more ultimate reasons. Now, we can say here Christ needed to die in order to fulfill God's purpose, but that just sort of points to another question. Why was it God's purpose? Same thing, he did this to be obedient to the will of the Father. Well, why was it the will of the Father? He died to fulfill prophecy, yes, but why was it prophesied? So these are all valuable reasons why Christ had to die and of themselves they're enough nonetheless there's there's something there's there's some theological necessity that stands behind it all and that's really what we're we're after here okay I say there's two general uh, uh, options here one is the hypothetical necessity view made famous by most Arminians and Pelagians. These argue that God could have used another means, a means other than the death of Christ, to get our, to to secure our salvation. But He chose this method so uh, because it was a very stark way to illustrate how God's government works. Which is why it's sometimes called the governmental view of the atonement. Perhaps you've heard of it. Christ's unjust death produces in us both a regret that we're the same kind of people that put Christ on the cross. We're like that. And so we should have this regret. And then also a resolve to take the steps necessary to change our lives so we don't do this kind of thing. So you can see here why it would be something popular among Arminians or Pelagians because it assumes that we're able to, to... you know, evaluate our world, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and and do the right thing uh, without any assistance from God. And so, it's it basically what Christ does is he he gives us a, an example and and an illustration of what can go wrong if you don't reform your your life. Okay, and so this is very popular among liberals uh, who who don't hold to depravity. Uh, very popular among uh, Arminians and Pelagians, those who who believe that man is not totally depraved. Okay, but in reply, <coughs> we find here that this this is not just one way of many that God was doing it to sort of help people to transform themselves. Because we say here, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is the only way it could be. Which leads us to the second view, and that is that the consequent absolute necessity view of the atonement. What do we mean by that? Once God, in his grace, made the voluntary decision to save mankind, the death of Christ was consequently necessary. So once once God decided to save people, this was the only way it could be done. 
So it was the singular and thus the necessary means of realizing the divine intention. This necessity is, is due not to the government, a government that exists outside of God, but rather it points to the perfections of God himself. He had to be made like his brothers in every way, so that he might be a merciful high priest in service to God and make atonement for the sins of the people. So this is the only way it could have been done. There's no other possible way. Once God decided in his mercy to save us, this is the only way it could move forward. Okay? I think we can get this next section done here quickly here. But So, why then? Why then is it necessary? Well, first the wholeness of God. God cannot leave the guilty unpunishment, un- unpunished. In every violation, every disobedience received its just judgment. This, this is the way God is. And you can't change God. You might want God to be so lovey-dovey that he can just overlook sin, but that's just not the way he is. And uh, we, you, you, you might want a God other than the God we have, but you don't get that choice, <laughs> is, the, is the point. The nature of the sin demand it, demands it. Those who do such things, that's a long list, those who do such things deserve death, and everyone knows this. Now, some of these are more advanced sins, homosexuality, murder, and such. But others are much more primitive, such as they didn't acknowledge God and weren't thankful or were disobedient to their parents. Those people who do these things are guilty of capital crimes, and we know it. Okay, because of the nature of the sin, the nature of of the God Himself, and then also the morphe of the sinner, the, the 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 form of the sinner. Christ could only save whom He became, so He had to become a human and die a human death, because that's the only way that God's holy wrath against mankind could be satisfied. Which is exactly the point in Hebrews two, since the children, that is the the objects of His love his redemptive love. Since these children have flesh and blood, Christ, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. So he had to become a human in order to die a human death, which was the require, the just requirement of a holy God. And then he goes on and says, he doesn't help angels. <coughs> Only Abraham's descendants. Why? Because he didn't become an angel. That was that was not his that was not his intention. They just fell. Right. They just fell, and they're they're locked in to to whatever whatever they're 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 either confirmed in holiness or they're confirmed in sin. There is no sacrifice for the angels. Christ doesn't help angels. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and make atonement for the sins of people. So the sin itself, the holiness of God, the form that the sinners take, and then the substance of the law. God's righteous decree is that those who do such things deserve death. And remember, God's righteous decree is an extension of his own nature and character, not something capricious or outside of himself. It's an extension of his own nature. John 3, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Implies this is the only way we can believe and have eternal life is for Christ to be lifted up. So that everyone who believes may have eternal life. I think we find the same thing in Galatians. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness could have come by the law. However, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Therefore, Christ had to become a curse, become a curse for us in order to redeem us from our curse. So it's a very, it's a very logical argument here. Now, the one big objection to this that you often see, and with this we'll close, isn't this, isn't God a rather savage God? 
Uh, you'll, you'll hear this this line. So I don't know if you've heard this line here, but that God's guilty of cosmic child abuse, okay? Because he just seems to take delight in punishing people, and then takes it out on his own son. I mean, what kind of God is that? You know, and you, you you get that question sometimes. So what do we do with that question? I heard a debate between somebody who was uh, defending penal substitutionary atonement versus the view you just mentioned. And uh, one of the points the guy made, he said that God commands us to forgive unconditionally, but uh, God cannot. He, he demands justice. And I thought the guy, other guy, uh, gave a good answer to it. Basically, he was saying that, that it's it's up to God to uh, hand out justice. That's why we forgive unconditionally. Well, and, and and I guess I would I would I would actually you know push a little bit back against this statement that we're supposed to forgive unconditionally. Mm-hmm. I mean. There are conditions to be met for forgiveness, namely repentance. So it's not as though we just go around willy-nilly forgiving people who are just hardened against us. It's, forgiveness implies reconciliation, but it does. So, so, so there, there does seem to be some expectation of of a, of a cost for forgiveness. Nonetheless. Christ does give us the illustration that because he he forgave us, we should be likewise willing. And so it's it's all based on the fact that he was he forgave us in accordance with his with the expectations of of his father that we are able to do the same. So yeah. So, but I think his main point was that even though we don't demand a sacrifice from somebody in order to forgive them, a sacrifice still has to be made for that. Or a punishment is still due for that sin. There right. is a cost for that sin, even if, it, even if we don't extract the cost from the person we're forgiving. Yeah, even if, if we don't extract it from them, then we're absorbing it in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. So there, 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 is, there is punishment. You know, if somebody steals $100 from me, and you said, say, I'm sorry, but I don't have money to pay it back. I can either, you know, sue you to get the hundred dollars, or I can absorb the penalty in myself. But somebody's got to absorb the penalty. Mm-hmm. Either me or you. Somebody's got to absorb the penalty. Can you extract it out of them? Can, could you, can I just beat it out of them? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want. Just go ahead. Just give us permission, please. <laughs> Sorry for making you think bad thoughts. <laughs> okay, but just real quickly here, let's let's point out here some of the, a couple of answers to this. First, we've observed above this isn't an arbitrary system of justice that God implements capriciously. It's an extension of His known nature and character. We might not like the way God is, but that's the way God is, and you don't really get much choice in that. But he does, he does not punish us the way that he could. He could, right. Nonetheless, there is a, a system of justice that that justice needs to fall on somebody. It's got to be absorbed by somebody. Whether it's me or whether it's someone who stands for me. Justice must be served. Because, you know, and, and I think we all recognize that. That when justice isn't served, it's unsatisfactory for everybody. Right? And so justice is necessary within God. The, the, the punishment must fall. It either falls on you or falls on him, but it has to fall. And that's the way God is. And so that, that sort of leads into that second point. A reply that says God is, God is mean, God is savage, reflects a very low view of God as creator, of justice, and of sin, and a rather high view of me. And my assumed value so high, so high, in fact, that it rather brazenly suggests that the standards fabricated by the creature may rival and replace God. This is the height of creaturely arrogance, and it's the essence of idolatry, the seminal sin of mankind. I want a God who's different than the one who is, and I'm going to tell him the way he's going to be. Well, that's not your prerogative. 
as Romans 9 says, is God unjust? Not at all. Who are you, O man, to reply, uh, to talk back to God? So, yeah, I, I really don't end up having a whole lot of sympathy for people who don't like God. <laughs> God is the way he is, and I, I can't really help it if you don't like him. Uh, you, you accept, you make you make your peace on his terms, or or not at all, because he's God. So it's, to me, it's this, this is the argument that he's savage or a, an abuser is is only true because people have turned justice on his head and are calling that which is good evil, evil good. So I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer, but I, I tend not to have a lot of patience for that question, honestly. Okay. Next time we'll, we'll uh, talk here about the death of, of Christ. What does it mean for Jesus to die? What does it mean for God to die? You know, we, we'll talk about these phrases. What, what, what are what are the options here, and and how should we understand what happened to Christ on the cross? What happened in his death? Uh, what is death? And, and so on and so forth. So that's our topic for next time. Okay.